Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. From the Palmetto Swamps, to the Piney Woods, to the Oak Flats, you're listening to the Louisiana Bowhunter Podcast. Hey guys, welcome to this week's episode of Louisiana Bowhunter Podcast. This week we sat down with Betsy Dutrois, who is a biologist with the National Wild Turkey Federation, Louisiana Department of Wildlife and Fisheries, and the U.S. Forestry Service. So she's split three ways and has deliverables for all three departments. But one of them, which is a really cool story is her involvement in the deer program for Tinsaw National Wildlife Refuge. But before we get started, we need to say a big thank you to our two sponsors. First up is Steve German's Taxidermy Art in Westlake, Louisiana, one of the absolute best taxidermists in the state, and the only one that's made it easier for you to transport your deer back into Louisiana by having a separate drop-off point in Orange, Texas, for you to drop off your deer so you don't have to cape it out. And secondly is Cousin Smokehouse, big Louisiana company growing by the day. They're in over 400 shops so far and in every grocery store, archery shop and gas station that I can remember stopping in in the last three to six months. They're the home of the original pork jerky, some of the most flavorful and delicious and tender jerky you've ever had. So definitely something you want to be carrying in your hunting bag this season. So a huge shout out to them. And with that being said, let's get on to this week's episode. All right, we're here with Betsy Dutrois from Northeast Louisiana. You live up in uh, Delhi, and you are originally from Pennsylvania. I am, right? yes. So you live here for, how long have you been in Louisiana? Then? Uh, about five years now. Well, so what brought you down here from the Northeast? I took a job. I was working as a technician on a deer capture project in Pennsylvania, and when that project wrapped up, um, started looking for other jobs, and one came up in Louisiana, and I thought, hey, I'd never been down there before, so I 
decided to apply, got the job, and, and moved down here and worked as a deer technician. So what, uh, what kind of education do you have and what, what's your background in and what do you do for the state now? Um, so I have a bachelor's in biology and I attended the University of Georgia uh, for a master's in forest resources, concentration in wildlife management. Mm-hmm. Um, I currently work as a uh, district biologist for the National Wild Turkey Federation. I cover the entire state of Louisiana and I have deliverables for LDWF and the Forest Service. Gotcha. So, so you're split three ways, essentially. Yeah, so uh, my position is supported uh, partially by the National Wild Turf Federation, partially by uh, U.S. Forest Service, and partially by the Louisiana Department of Wildlife and Fisheries, uh, just because I have things that I need to do for all three of those organizations. Gotcha. That's a pretty busy... Uh pretty busy schedule that you've got I'm sure yeah they keep me busy so we were talking earlier and I kind of made a joke so what you brought down here what brought you down here excuse me was um you were working a uh, a project in Tinsaw yeah so I I started as a technician on a fawn mortality and a buck movement study in Tinsaw National Wildlife Refuge and I, I worked there for about three or four months and I got promoted to grad student and so my research focused on uh, what kind of habitats does were selecting for during different times of the year? Like, were they avoiding areas or selecting for areas right before they were about to drop their fawns, whether it be nutritional, um, predator avoidance, mm-hmm. you know, what, how old the stand is, how young the stand is, agriculture versus CRP. Um, just kind of looking at on a landscape level, what were what were does selecting for before they drop their fawns? So I think some of our listeners here, they they probably listen to everything you just said, but if they're like me, the only thing that really stuck is that you know where all the deer in Tinsaw are. <laughs> we um, <laughs> we ended up trapping over 250 uh, free range whitetails on Tinsaw National Wildlife Refuge. Um, it was about 20 to 25 bucks, and then. Um, every year we caught between 30 and 40 does, put collars on them as well, and then uh, collared their fawns. We use uh, like vaginal transmitters in the does, and mm-hmm. once they dropped the fawns, that transmitter came out with them, and we could get on our little antennas and track right to the birth site and try now, to find now the Now, do you get a signal when, they, when it comes out, or is it just a, a guessing game as to you know, walk in the woods with an antenna and a... We checked them every four to eight hours. So the new, there's like new technology where it like works off the satellite and you can get a text message on your phone that says, hey, there was a birthing event um, or a mortality event. We were working kind of old school equipment right before those came out. And so we had to go out and manually check all 30 to 40 does every four to eight hours. Hey, wow. did, did she give birth? And then you just ride to the next one. So when you say you're checking them, uh, how far away from you are, are, are you from them? Uh, it depends on the habitat. Uh, on the project, I work in Pennsylvania with, you know, the mountains and the tree structure. A lot of times we get a lot of bounce back. And so you'd have to be really close to the deer to get a better reading. Here in Louisiana, where the land is flat, um, you can be a little bit further away. For the does, we like to be between, I don't know, maybe three and 500 yards Wow. To get a, to get a good reading. So, so obviously, and just to confirm, you aren't like re-catching the deer or having any sort of traumatic event right before mm-hmm. you. So this is something done from a distance, um, done through, is it, is it infra, infrared? Is it uh, Bluetooth? How, what kind of so, technology is it? So we trapped the does in January, uh, hopefully after they've been bred. Um, and we fit them with a, a VHF collar, uh, that submits a signal. Um, 
It's not a GPS unit. We don't get actual locations. We have to actually go out and physically triangulate the deer. Mm-hmm. Um, and then again with the the v, uh, the vaginal transmitters. So those work off temperature. So while they're inside the doe, obviously they're a higher temperature. When they when they're expelled with the fawn, uh, they drop down. I think the the limit was like. 87 degrees once they get below that then they start emitting a a faster beep signal wow so that's when we knew that the vit was probably out of the doe and we had to go look for fawns that's incredible it was fun i mean 250 deer i got to put my hands on on the refuge just i mean that's crazy yeah that is crazy so tell me a little bit about these collars and the type of information that you've gathered from them uh, in that whole program did it was it a success yeah so there were um Three different studies going on. Uh, the buck study, which everybody you know typically puts a lot of attention on, is how are bucks moving during the rut, and is it different during the year? And you know, we try to categorize these bucks into how are they how are they behaving? You know, when the rut kicks in, are they moving more? Are they moving less? A lot of people talk about the October lull. Is that a thing where bucks kind of are in the lockdown phase? Mm-hmm. And all of our deer did something different. Like all the bucks, some moved more, <laughs> some moved less. They just, we kind of chalked it up to they each have their own uh, personalities um, and they might have different does available. They might have different, uh, I guess, like uh, dominance structure. You know, they just, they all acted a little bit different. And so we were kind of left with, not a whole lot from the buck study yeah. other than they each kind of did their own Not thing. Not a lot of answers. So, I mean, how does that compare to some of the deer that you grew up with or you studied up in the, in the Northeast? Same things. I mean, one of the most useful information that we can get from these research studies is uh, habitat selection. Like, where are they spending most of their times and how, do, how are they utilizing the landscape and the resources? Mm-hmm. And that's how we, as habitat managers, kind of make decisions based on you know, how often are we going to cut our trees? How how many trees are we going to cut in a thinning? Um, you know, when when should we be mowing? Do we need to push for more hardwoods? Can we afford to have uh, more pine in these production stands? You know, it, it's, it's kind of like a really crazy algorithm where we're pulling mm-hmm. information from a million different directions trying to make the most responsible decision for to manage the resource. Gotcha. So um, when you're managing a population and and an entire piece of property, what's, what do you think is the the biggest cause for maybe a decline in population? Is it, is it hunting pressure? Is it hunting at night, illegal activity? Is it predatorial activity? I I think it's a mix of things depending on, on where you're at. Um, So as far as mortality is concerned, there's, there's two different terms that we use. There's compensatory and additive. And so we're just going to assume that there's like a baseline of mortality. There's just always going to be a certain percent of the population that's, that's going to die. And so when we think about additive, um, it's like an external source of mortality that's causing that baseline to increase. Mm-hmm. Um, compensatory is where you're adding more mortality, but it's kind of like making up and they find, you just kind of find balance Mm -hmm. in that system. So even though you might be killing more, um, it's not really making an effect on the population. So, so like deer hunting would be compensatory. A flood would be 
Additive, Additive yes. Okay. Absolutely. Some um, event that, that takes out more than uh, is considered normal. Yes. Okay. Interesting. Yes. I would, I would compare it to like fall season turkey hunting. A lot of the northern states have a, have a fall hen season mm-hmm. just because their winters are really harsh. And they just kind of assume that a lot of those birds are going to die anyways. Might as well kill them. Might as well let the hunters take them out. And then the ones that are left have more, more resources that they don't have to compete with. Hmm. And so that's, that's compensatory mortality to where, you know, if we take those birds out in the fall, chances are, you know, we're not going to have that high mortality in the winter. It just kind of compensates for what would, would, would be lost anyways. Very interesting. The deer study is what brought you down here. You, you found, uh, you found your husband, yes. not your husband at the time, but, but y'all got married and you've got kids and now you're, you, now you have been totally introduced to the South with a very Cajun French last name, right? Uh, Dutois. Dutois, right? Yeah. And, and what, the, what's funny about that is, um, so I knew you were from Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. We had we had spoken before, and there's a lot of names from South Louisiana that um, don't translate to other parts of the country with the same same uh, enunciation or the yes. same same. Um, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, you just this, this, the, yeah, they all pronounce names yeah. weird or it, like drop letters. <clears throat> Yeah, some of those like R's and certain names are worthless, you know, Abear, you know, Herbert Abear. Mm-hmm. It depends on where you are in the country. But anyway, um, I didn't know that uh, Dutrois was from your husband, who's from Louisiana. Mm-hmm. I thought I actually in my head thought you were Detroit or Dutoit mm-hmm. because other areas in the country <laughs> that I've been, th- there isn't that phoneticism uh, type of type of spin to it. And then what, I think you told me, you know, your husband's born and raised South Louisiana or, or Louisiana. I was like, Oh, it's Dutrois. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I gave you all the credit back <laughs> that I, I didn't give you at first, you know? So you, so you moved down to South Louisiana, you got you a Kunas last name, <laughs> right? And uh, now you're just fully immersed. Oh, I can fry chicken. Like you wouldn't believe. <laughs> you said earlier when we were talking, you said you, you're trying to uh, twist up your, your Southern accent a little bit. Yeah. So I guess just because I've been immersed in it for five years now that I'll, I'll start to pick up some Southern, uh, draw, I guess. And when I go back to Pennsylvania, my friends are like, what? They, they call you out on I'm it. Like, what are you talking about? Yeah. It's funny to listen to you say stuff. Yeah. But then they sound like they're straight up Canadian, mm-hmm. you know, now talking to them on the phone and stuff. I'm like, you know, did I used to sound like that? <laughs> That's funny. Well, um, we started talking a little bit about turkeys. Would you say that that's mainly like your primary focus in the deer season spring time? Is that what you're primarily focusing on is turkey season and regulation for those? Yes. So um, as I mentioned before, now I work for the uh, National Wild Turkey Federation. And so I have deliverables with uh, both state and federal partners to uh, conserve the wild turkey and, and all that that entails. So uh, in the springtime, I'm busy, uh, as much as I'd like to be busy turkey hunting, I'm usually busy, uh, executing contracts, making sure that our wildlife openings are, uh, ready, that our prescribed burns are getting done, that we are, um, getting our mid-story reduction, uh, completed. And so most of my spring is wrapped up with, uh, just contract execution and tractor time. I want to just put an asterisk on the prescribed burns because that's something people are passionate about. So let's come back to yes. that in a, in a few minutes. But, you know, right now we're in Baton Rouge. We're, we're at my house. Uh, and Bessie called me earlier today and said, hey, I'm going to be in your part 
Um, I've got a meeting in uh, Laranja. Yes. I had to explain to you how that was pronounced. God, I butchered the <laughs> heck out of that What did town. you call it? La Oranger? La- what did I say? Laranger? Laranger. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Laranja. So, uh, so you've got a meeting in Laranja and you were also in Morganza earlier today. So what are, what are these, what are you doing with these meetings with landowners? What's their purpose? What, so, what are you doing? So part of my job is to assist, uh, Louisiana Department of Wildlife and Fisheries with technical assistance for private landowners. Mm-hmm. And so, um, if you recall, a couple of years ago, they had to open up the Morganza Spillway, and it flooded. It feels like uh, they open it every year. Yeah. Now they well, they definitely talk about it, but I mean, I think this the flooding a couple of years ago was pretty substantial, and a lot of people are concerned that they may have used to have turkeys on their property, and now they don't, and they attribute it to the flooding. In reality, we are seeing a decline in the population across not just the state of Louisiana, but the entire Southeast. Mm-hmm. Um, um, obviously the, the spillway probably had a, had a impact on the turkey population in those areas. They're not, they're not batcher birds. They're not used to, to seasonal flooding to where they know to either nest in high ground or to, you know, get the heck out when the water comes up. I think these birds were caught, you know, off guard that the water was coming. And so I think it, it definitely assisted with the population decline in that area. So, we go out and meet with private landowners and assess their habitat, see what they have available, talk about previous uh, land use, future management plans, and then weigh the options of maybe restocking turkeys in that area, mm-hmm. um, see what the adjacent area is like. Is there any connectivity to you know, where we were today? Um, there's a, a couple different hunting clubs that want to get together to, to work to bring these birds back, and they're really close to Sherburne. And so if we can get these private lands on board and then we have that public land available, you know, there might be an opportunity to bring that population back. So uh, restocking or reintroducing birds into an area is the only way to do that through y'all? No. So it's not through the Turkey Federation. It's through uh, the Louisiana Department of Wildlife and Fisheries. We're just, you know, uh, assisting Mm -hmm. with those operations. Um, but I think that people have this false sense of what the population should be like because when we were doing these restocking efforts in the late 90s and early 2000s, the birds took off. Like, they did great. You know, they were reproducing. We had a lot of dry seasons. The, we had a lot of nest success. And the population was really high, and people were whacking them. Like, left and right, people were having great seasons. And so I think that was a false sense of where the population can be. And people got hung up on that, and they they tend to remember the good times. Mm-hmm. Um, and now we're in the bad times. I think, I guess, carrying capacity should be somewhere in the middle of that. I definitely think it's higher than where we are now, but I also think it's lower than what it used to be. Well, would you say that it was kind of artificially inflated back yes, then? Yes, yes. Yeah. Just I mean, it's when like we stocking were stocking a pond, yeah, and, and you fishing know, behind the, the truck, yeah, following, the fish. yeah, exactly. It's yeah. just you know you get a, a false sense of of what the population's like, and it's really exciting, and you want it to be like that all the time. It's it's not real. It's not realistic. That actually that brings up another point that's interesting is that hunters, um, we all have this a lack of self-awareness for the, the best practices for the entire population or maybe the entire state of hunters or birds or deer or whatever. And we all seem to come up with our feelings of it based on our own successes. Yes. Okay. And I, and I know that I might be sounding very obvious when I say this, but the reality is, is that maybe 
like you said, there is a balance point between where we are now, which we, we're very, we are very low now. I, I don't, I'm not a huge turkey fanatic, but hunter efforts are not being as rewarded as they were 10, 15, 20 years ago. But at the same time, getting back up to that level, like maybe that isn't sustainable. Obviously, actually, it's obvious that it wasn't. Right. You know, because I can guarantee you that the hunters didn't kill all the turkeys back down to our population. Now, there's there's other factors, you know, for mortality rates and predators and things like that. Yes. Um, which I, that's going to be something we talk about later on is going to be, you know, the hog population. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, how how you know, speaking kind of openly about how that can be controlled. And it might just be a hypothetical, but some information about that. But what were the turkey numbers from this year? What, how many turkeys were killed in the state this year? I think it was 1,205, no, 1989. 1989? I think. And that was reported. So reported harvest this year was uh, 1989. Mm-hmm. And that was 35 fewer birds than were harvested last year. And mm-hmm. actually, if you look over like a five-year period, it's the second highest it's been. Okay. Um, but that's reported harvest. Yeah. I, so I, we shared an article that you put out or some information that you put out because you run the National Wild Turkey Federation Louisiana Facebook page. Yes. Um, and so you put out a lot of data on the harvest reports of this year. What? Um, how do you come up with a number of unreported kills versus reported? I know a lot of people ask about that. So in Louisiana, since 2009, there's been a, a mandatory reporting system. So after you kill your bird, you have 72 hours to call it in. Um, and so you, utilizing that information, we get our reported harvest numbers. At the end of the year, um, LDWF sends out a mail-in survey, and sometimes it comes in the paper mail. I think some people get theirs email. Um, and it, it's just a series of questions about, uh, the success of your season. You know, what have you seen? What have you heard? What have you harvested? What it's basically like a long version of the hip certification. Mm-hmm. And, um, so they utilize that information based on, uh, what, what hunters say in that survey plus, you know, law enforcement efforts. Uh, you know, I'm sure there's a lot of information that goes into this and using all of that information plus the reported harvest, they come up with this estimate that's, I mean, I think last year it was like four to 5,000 mm-hmm. estimated harvest. Mm-hmm. And then reported harvest was about 2,000. And so they, they estimate that, you know, on any given year, about 40% of the hunters are reporting their harvests. Um, and you had some, some people that were t- taking your words out of context and they were saying that, 40% of hunters aren't reporting their harvest, making it sound like 60% are. Yes. That was wrong. Yes. So the lower the lower percentage is what's physically calling wild and fishers saying, hey, I killed a turkey today. Yes. Okay. So the concern I have with that is, you know, again, same thing with um, the stuff that we talked about earlier is I think it's somewhere in the middle. Mm-hmm. Do I think it's between four and 5,000 birds? Maybe. I think that might be a little bit high. Do I think it's... 2000, I think it's way more than 2000. Mm-hmm. So I, again, I, I think those are just indexes. I don't think they're actual numbers that LDWF is making, you know, these, these strict decisions on. It's more of like an index. The interesting thing about those two numbers though, is like over the years, they've always tracked each other. Like if you mm-hmm. lay them out on a graph, they're always increasing and decreasing in, in moving together. In parallel. Yeah. So it, it reassures us that the method of the mail-in survey is is effective at, at getting that index. But it's just trying to convince people 
a larger percentage of people to actually report what they're killing. Yes, and I, you know, I hope that as we continue to to push this information and, and why it's important, you know, we can hopefully close that gap in the future because mm-hmm. it would be ideal to make management decisions based on harvest numbers, but we don't know if they're accurate. Yeah, proven accurate harvest yeah. numbers. Yeah, because sometimes I feel as if people are a little too critical of definitive, expecting definitive answers out of uh, wildlife and fisheries or NWTF. And the reality is this is a science and it isn't, you know, one man behind a, a curtain just just figuring up on a board with the quota of turkey this year that's going to be taken. It is all dictated by hunter input. Yes. And and so technically, and this goes, this definitely goes towards deer hunting also, when you make a conscious decision to, for whatever reason, not claim a harvest, you're kind of hurting the process. Yes. Not kind of, you are. You're, yes. You are hurting the process because you're not allowing that type of information to get back to people so that we can make better legislature for the state or better deer seasons or better turkey seasons in this case. Uh, that kind of goes back to what I said before. A lot of times hunter o- hunters only care about themselves sometimes and in their own their own world, their own mind, their own club, their own family. And that's fine, but the entities that kind of help set the regulations for these things, they depend on you. Yeah, so one, you know? one example of that would be the Jake's harvest. So I hear it all the time. People are always like, hey, we should stop killing Jake's because, you know, we need to let them get to be mature gobblers. Mm-hmm. Well... According to the data that we have to work with, less than 5% of the harvest is Jake's. So if we were to eliminate those from harvest, it's not going to make that much of an impact on the population because Mm -hmm. they're not contributing, you know, that it's, it's, that's such a small percentage that removing that from harvest isn't going to make a difference unless people who are shooting Jake's are not reporting them. And, you know, we might be way off on what that number looks like. If that's the case, and maybe it's, you know, 15 to 20% of the harvest is Jake's, then yeah, absolutely. That's a conversation we need to have, but we can only make these decisions based on the data we have. And, and we really rely on the hunters to, to help us do that. I mean, we, we've got to be a team here. We're, we're all after the same goal is to have better hunter satisfaction, healthier herd populations, healthier flock populations. And so we really need to to push to work together for that. I'm glad you said that because there's there's some misconceptions out there about whether it be wildlife and fisheries or government agencies in general. There's this kind of old old belief of like, uh, you know, either being afraid of the government, not wanting to help them out, or that old joke of like, hey, I'm with the government, I'm here to help. Right? Yeah. And like, we need to remind ourselves, wildlife and fisheries is not FEMA. Yeah. <laughs> okay. We aren't we aren't here to we. I'm like I'm a part of the wildlife and fisheries. They aren't out there to undervalue your house for how much flood money you can get back if you flood after Katrina or, you know, any, any other flood. These, these entities exist. They 24 hours a day, every day, every day out of the year, they're out there trying to somehow improve uh, wildlife populations for hunters. Right. Like we didn't, I didn't go to school for eight years because I don't enjoy hunting. I, I love hunting. I love being outdoors. I love the challenge of, of managing timber and wildlife. You know, I, I do it because I love it. I do it because I want my son and my daughter to grow up hunting. Mm-hmm. I want, I had an awesome time growing up hunting with my dad. The memories that I've made doing that are just so valuable to me. And I want my kids to be able to experience that. Do you, do you think that there's some belief out there that for some illogical reason, 
a government agency want would want to suppress hunting? I can't imagine. The LEWF works pretty much completely off of license sales. Mm-hmm. And so if we don't have happy hunters and hunters aren't buying licenses, the entire system crashes. Same, you know, like same goes for the deer and the CWD, like the, the deer make the money. And so I hate to like get spun off into CWD right now, but you know, if, if this disease poses a serious, keep going, if this disease poses a serious threat to the deer population, you know, we're at serious risk of losing a, a majority of our funding to, to manage all of our public lands. Yeah. So I, I don't know why people, you know, are af- afraid of the government or think that, uh, the state agencies, you know, out to, to ruin their turkey season, but you know, we're, we're trying to help. We're trying to make happy hunters and we're a bunch of rednecks just trying to have fun in the woods too, you know? <laughs> yeah. We're four wheel it on the same sandbar yeah, on exactly. Saturday. Yeah. yeah. This, this is kind of a fun topic and it's one, you, you know, I have to admit you've been such a great sport about some of the comments and feedback that you get on obviously some Facebook pages and people believe people's beliefs of turkey management. But so what's some of the most incredible or maybe hysterical beliefs you've seen and heard. And like, so let's talk a little bit about the the real intention behind there and what y'all are doing. So there's been a lot of concern that the public has had that the forest service and I guess state agencies across the Southeast are burning up individual turkey nests. Like setting individual turkeys on fire. Like it has, yeah. So it has escalated from, doing prescribed burns during the wrong time of the year to lighting individual nests on fire. Like we're seeking them <laughs> like out that's and your lighting tender, them huh? on purpose. Yeah, like yeah. light the bird on fire and send them into the yeah, woods and hope it catches. I don't like it. Kindling is an actual turkey nest. Oh my yeah. goodness. It's, it's gotten really out of hand. And I think a lot of it is because it's, it's such a catchy topic and it gives people an area to point their finger. Yeah. Even, even though they're kind of ignoring the the logic of it and the benefits far outweigh the cost, I mean, people just are so attracted to to the idea that we're burning up all the turkey nests, and that has got to be the the number one reason there for have the decline. Been, there have really been some really hysterical memes made out of this yes. topic. I mean, people with turkeys running through the woods with you know fireballs on their back and. You know, people shooting lit on fire turkeys out of uh, flamethrowers. You know, it's 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 been it's become a pretty good joke. You I know? saw uh, somewhere in I want to say Florida, but I don't know if that's right. That there was like a marsh burning, and they're like, "Can you believe that they're burning during turtle nesting season?" And <laughs> you know, as a, making a joke yeah. about the turkeys, but I mean, it it really has gotten out of hand, and and I think that comes from a lot of lack of education people don't understand the value of, of, of the burning process, or, or the the right. timing and the, and the reason that we do it and it like i said it's just like a sexy topic that you, that's got to be it, it it is easy to grab onto and it, it is buzzworthy and it's got some sensationalism attached to it but in reality so i'll just play devil's advocate here how do you know that you aren't setting turkey nests on fire so i won't say that we aren't I'm sure that in some instances it happens. There's going to be a few casualties. On the Kisatchee, throughout the course of the different research projects, and LSU and UGA have done multiple studies on the Kisatchee, 
I think they had about 449, I think was the number, nests out. And they were looking at nest success in a highly pyritic landscape. Mm -hmm. So managed with fire. And of those 449 nests, none of them were lost directly due to fire. Zero. Zero. Two of them were exposed to fire, to where the fire was had come over the nest. Mm-hmm. Low intensity burn. On one, the hen flushed, came back, reincubated. The other one, the hen stayed hunkered down. She was in like a thicket, and the fire didn't go like into the thicket. You know, once it gets mm-hmm. uh, into some of those spots, it just won't carry. And so she just stayed hunkered down on the nest, and uh, the fire went around her. She stayed down, hatched out her clutch. So how do you check these? You say you monitor nests. Mm-hmm. I saw one of my favorite comments was like, are you sitting there the whole time? Or, <laughs> you know, do you have people sitting on each nest watching the turkey sit? So how? So I, mean, I would imagine you, you set a place on fire. Mm-hmm. Um, it burns. It runs its course. And then what? you just walk back through and check them. Yes. So the hens are wearing uh, GPS units. They're like little backpacks. Mm-hmm. They're, I mean, maybe as big as your thumb. Um, and they have like little straps on them and we stick their wings through, uh, and they're, they're GPS units. So they actually give us a location. And so we can tell, you know, if a hen leaves the area, if she's roosting, if she starts incubating a nest and that's when we, you know, start going in and fr- from a distance, cause we don't want to have any kind of, uh, observer impact on mm-hmm. the nest, um, and observe the nest. And when a fire comes through, you, you go out there and see like, is she still sitting on the nest? Did she abandon it and you wait a couple days you know, is she sitting on it? You can just, you know, bring your antenna out or your, uh, if, if, if it's a satellite capable GPS unit, you can just check your email and see if she stayed sitting on that nest. If she abandoned it, then we go in and say, Oh, was this lost to fire? If she stays on it, then, you know, chances are she's going to try to hatch that clutch. Not only do you know where all the deer and tinsel are, but you're telling me you know where the majority of the turkeys and kasachi are also. I mean, only on three of the districts. So, like, have, do you have any <laughs> do you do you have any fear of being kidnapped and held for ransom for this type of information or anything? Not so much the turkeys. Definitely during deer season. My goodness, <laughs> people were yeah just wanting to know where those bucks were. That's funny. Well, yeah. I mean, that that makes good sense. Well, you said you said. Um, you know, y'all had some pretty impressive deer that were, uh, well, maybe they weren't that impressive when you tagged them a few years ago, but they're still roaming out right now. Some of these deer are five, six, seven, eight years old. Yes. So, um, all of the deers got, uh, uniquely identified with ear tags, um, different numbers, different colors based on the years. And so we trapped, uh, adults from 2013 to 2015 and the, you know, the target for deer for the, for the buck study was was mature deer Mm -hmm. so we wanted to make sure that these bucks were at least two and a half years old when we trapped them so the majority of them were three and a half or older four and a half sometimes it's hard to to age them when they're asleep and i mean they're sedated but you want to go stick your hand in a deer's mouth and get bit (laughs) so um we were pretty confident uh aging them on the hoof with a lot of practice and then we would check their teeth while they were sedated um and and make a a good estimate and then now people are, are seeing these deer on, on game cameras and, uh, you know, judging by the, the ear tag, we can, oh, we, we estimated that buck to be three and a half in 2013. Well, here it is 2018. Mm-hmm. So that buck's probably, you know, seven, eight years old. That's incredible. It's awesome. So is there, I mean, is there any sort of, uh, 
delicate information you can share with us about habits or patterns or what they did or what you're surprised by? Um, which tree they're hiding behind? <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, some, some cool facts about that study. You know, I said every, every buck was different. They each behaved differently. We had one deer that would stay in the closed area, um, like the wildlife loop, mm-hmm. uh, right behind the headquarters for the majority of deer season. And in the spring, he took off like 12 miles to, to Timbuktu. I don't know what property he was on, but it was a pro- private land track north of the refuge. And he stayed there until about September. And then he came back to the closed area. Huh. And he did that two years in a row. So I don't know if he like knew like, oh, hunting 12, season. 12 miles yeah. that far. So That's he incredible. had to cross the river like two or three times. So he's like, oh man, hunting season's about to come in. Better go hide up in the sanctuary. You know, I know a lot of people are kind of obsessed with the reserve area there. Was there any sort of percentage of deer that y'all tracked that, that were in there primarily only? Like they never left. Yeah. I mean, the most of them didn't leave. Uh, a deer's home range, I mean... Some of the does had really small home ranges, but if she has everything she needs, why would you go? Mm-hmm. Why would you ever leave? And so some of those does kept under 150 acres. Wow. You know, and some of the bucks went anywhere from 600 to 1,600 acres um, just based on the time of year. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, what was planted that year in the refuge? Was it soybeans or was it milo? Mm-hmm. Um you know, that can make a difference. Well, you know, the episode before this, we spoke with uh, Frank Sullivan, uh, Travis Links was our, uh, our last, were our last two guests. And, um, you know, we were talking about, and both of them, uh, and both of them are really dedicated, mature deer hunters. Um, and, and Frank's actually labeled himself a cull hunter because he's trying to grow that mature deer and trying to, uh, you know, take anything that could, technically threatened that out Mm -hmm. of the population. Um, and one of the things that they said was that, uh, that was interesting is that a lot of people believe that the rut is the best time to kill a big deer, a big mature deer. And, um, the way that he killed his big deer in St. Francisville, and then I'm sure dozens of others before that, he's all about hunting the first two weeks of the season and being as non-disruptive as possible up to that point and not break up bachelor groups because his theory was that, you know, the matured buck's always going to be last in line. Find where your bachelor groups are, and your best chance of killing a mature buck during the day is when they don't even know it's hunting season yet. And so if you don't let them know that it's hunting season, meaning you aren't going in checking cameras every two days, driving your four-wheeler all over, um, you know, just feeding, feeding feeder, filling feeders and, and putting your sweat out there, if you just stay out, and, and maybe go to cell cams and you can manage your herd from a distance. When you go on that first two, first or second or third hunt of the year, that's when your best chance of actually maybe predicting the kill of a mature buck. And contrary to that, he said that during the rut is the greatest time to kill somebody else's mature buck <laughs> <laughs> that you've never seen before. Yes. You know, and, I mean, mature buck's a mature buck, but that deer that you've been hunting all year long and that you're trying to pattern, he probably has you patterned better. And, and, and so he's going to leave you and go somewhere else. And then at the same time, another deer from a neighboring property is trying to pattern somebody else. So he's going to go to new territory and that new territory might be you and your stand. And that's a you killing. And that's how, mm-hmm. you know, would you agree that that's kind of the, the way that 
mature bucks get killed miles away from their home range just because they're just driven off or pushed off. Yeah, I think they're just chasing does or, yeah, they got pushed off by a different buck or, you know, it could be a million reasons. Could yeah. be, you know, they got spooked by another hunter and just ran. Just you get know, going. That, that one that took off. So um, there's this, this thing with a deer that we call an excursion. And t- typically it's like, less than 48 hours, more than two miles. And we talk about, you know, deer take these trips and we've had a couple deer across different studies in Pennsylvania and Georgia and Louisiana to where they just go on an excursion. They just like the Forrest Gump, like they just wake up (laughs) one day and decide I'm going to go for a run and just, just, (laughs) they're gone. They just go. And then they, you know, might take them two days. Like when they might stop, you know, hang out for a little bit, go a little bit further and then come right back. That's and then wild. just, and they just go on these crazy excursions that we can't really explain. It's like Vegas or, for yeah, deer. Yeah, exactly. Like, yeah. what are they doing? I'm, we just kind of called it the Forrest Gump. They just wake up one day and said, I'm going to go for a run. Yeah. <laughs> what do you say? I sleep when I'm tired. I eat yeah. when I'm hungry. And yeah. I, I go when I have to go. Yeah. yeah. So uh, let's let's transition into uh, another topic. You know, we talked about turkeys. We talked a little about deer. And it's, it's, it's so cool talking to you because... There's a lot of belief about deer that is kind of like just repeating the same bad information enough times and people start to believe it. Talking to you, this is all, you know, regardless of your opinion, this is literally what you went to school for. This is your study. This is your occupation. This is what you wake up Monday through Friday and and go out and do. It's cool to get the factual side of things versus the, uh, I'm just going to come up with some off the top of my head, you know, don't shoot your does because you won't have any deer for next year. Just things like that. You know what I mean? Where it's just like, it's this thing that we've heard so many times that we don't even question whether or not it's true, but it's just absolutely wrong. Yes. (laughs) You know? So uh, science-based management, is obviously something that's very, very important. We want to make sure that we're making responsible decisions as far as managing these populations. Um, but it can be kind of a double-edged sword because, yes, it it helps guide our management decisions. However, a lot of those uh, peer-reviewed research topics are done on a, on a temporal scale. So, like, they're happening during this certain time, at this certain place while the forest is in these certain conditions. It's a snapshot. So if we were to redo that fawn survival study on Tensaw or the buck movement study now, as compared to when we did it in 2013, we might get different answers because the forest it's, it's five years have, have come and gone mm-hmm. and the forest dynamics might have changed. Uh, there might have been like a catastrophic flooding event that changed something or, you know, maybe a, a, a catastrophic fire or maybe a really good dry spring to where all the fawns came up or, you know, the research that we use is done on a certain time and place. So a lot of managers understand that. So we, we use the science which I think is the most responsible way to make decisions, but we also have to kind of balance with, is that applicable here? And that's why there are yeah. so many studies done, or they're just repeated in different areas and different times and different conditions. And then we try to take all of those together and make a decision based on, you know, all of this training that we've received and all of these studies that have been done. So the, those individual studies done, done in different parts of the state, 
that I mean that's one of the reasons why different WMAs have different rules or set. How can I say it? They have different regulations. Yes. Then uh, you know you might some WMAs you might not be able to kill any does. Some WMAs might only be able to shoot one of your bucks out of out of two or technically three that you could kill a year. Um, and so it, it is important to run these, as you said, repetitive research studies. Mm-hmm. But you're finding answers for different areas across the state. Yes. You know, um, and. Louisiana is such a massively diverse deer population. You, we have, you know, from the deer reintroduction program in the 60s, we brought deer down from, was it Wisconsin? Wisconsin. Yeah. So those are the deer that kind of rut when? In October, November? The, yeah, the earlier rut. Yeah, they that's just in their blood. Yeah, literally. so biologically, you know, if a fawn is born during the first estrus cycle or earlier in the year, there's a... a good chance that she is going to come into estrus you know earlier as Mm -hmm. well as as opposed to a fawn that's born late but it's it's also based on like years of of flooding response so Mm -hmm. these deer kind of synced up when and it's not just deer it's it's all the animals you know synced up when to have their their babies born in spring and summertime because they wanted their animal or their uh offspring to be big enough you know come the flooding you mm-hmm. know to be able to survive and so the ones that were born too early didn't make it the ones that were born too late didn't make it yeah. and you know we're kind of left with the ones in the middle and then and then you've got you've got a small population of the state i think is really unique like our marsh deer mm-hmm. and especially like our avery island population those are rutting in july like right now yeah it's they? crazy and in up in uh where i live in northeast louisiana usually that week between christmas and New Year's is our is our mm-hmm. hot rut time. Same, yeah, Baton Rouge, and we're all area six, so mm-hmm. we're all right around the, you know, December twenty fifth to maybe the first second week in January. It's usually our window. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, I mean, who knows? We Louisiana doesn't necessarily have like a hard onset rut the way we might in the the Midwest, where it's like take off work you don't miss any de- time in the woods. I mean, we, I've heard the word trickle rut used hundreds of times, um, where there's a little bit of chasing, a little bit of movement, but it isn't this like all out sprint yeah. for two straight weeks. I think it's pretty, pretty scattered between, you know, a couple of months across the state, yeah. you know, maybe late November to, to mid January. Was that a unique part of Louisiana that you, you well, picked up on? I mean, lo- hunting in Louisiana was a lot different than what I grew up with. So, you know, in, in Pennsylvania, we our our season is like two weeks. Mm-hmm. We have a two week gun season. That's it. And we always had yeah. school off. You know, that Monday there was no school because nobody went. Mm-hmm. So it was just like a reserved holiday, first day of buck season, and so and no hunting on Sundays. Uh, I have heard that. Yes. My mom lives in in a Phila- outside of Philadelphia for a mm-hmm. few years, and I went up and visited her one time in October. And I don't think it was deer season yet right. during that time. And so. Being able to, I mean, the archery season obviously is really long, but the, it was a two-week gun season, and so to to come down here and and it's a pretty liberal season. It's really long. You all can take six deer. Um, in Pennsylvania, you get your one buck tag, and that's it. And you can apply for a separate doe tag, but there's no guarantee that you'll get it. Yeah. So it it's just it was it was really crazy to come down here and just there's all these things that you can hunt, and the, the seasons are really long, and pretty much all year long there's something that's that's yeah. hot. 
So. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's something I think we need to not take for granted is, you know, I've got family in Colorado. I've been out the Western side of the U S a lot. And especially with social media these days, you can really very easily get in tune with the other types of hunting seasons that other people have. And the, the thing I keep reminding myself on is like, we've got a good, we really do. I mean, in my opinion, just personally, um, I would, I would love to see the deer limit go back down to like four or five or something like that. Um, and have a little more regulation. Cause I, I really believe that Louisiana could launch back into possibly a destination hunting state if we did that. But at the same time, I, I say that and to play devil's advocate with myself, not everybody's killing their sixth deer, right? It doesn't happen very often. Now I've done it. People I know have done it, but you really have to devote a lot of time, especially in how thick our woods are, to get close to deer yes. six separate occasions, especially yes. with a bow, in order to fill all your tags. And um, and so, you know, we all have these ideas of what the deer season should be like, but then we need to look at the results of what people are actually taking out every season. And it's like, it's not even close to everybody tagging out. That's, a, that's another thing, like I mentioned, the Jake's, regulation before people talk about dropping the bag limit for turkeys Mm -hmm. well you know according to the harvest reporting and the mail-in survey the amount of people that are bagging both birds is is pretty small once once again this goes back to they can only work with the information that we provide them period right and so hunters they really do have a an obligation to to help wildlife and fisheries make these decisions because they're counting on us they're counting on us to do that all right, so let's let's kind of change gears here, and um, you know we talked about turkeys, we talked about deer. Um, you and I spoke a few weeks ago about um, uh, hogs and our hog epidemic problem uh, disease. What do we want to call it? I mean, it's what they are. They're they're like walking cancer, pretty yeah. much. I think that was triggered by like a house bill that came through. It was a house bill out of Livingston Parish. I don't remember the gentleman's name, but um, it was pushed through. And, and the the problem that we that we had with it, and there were a lot of people up in arms about it. And it was kind of like you and the turkey burning thing. You know, you kind of have to laugh at that. This was something I had to laugh at was that some of the words that I wrote in the article were forcefully taken out of context. Like yes. Like some of the screenshots that people shared, they would actually blot out the the second sentence because it you couldn't be as mad if you read both of them together you yes. you, you know you just wanted to pinpoint the one that where I said some I don't even know remember what I said but anyway it was something that you, got, you know hogs are something people are passionate about on both sides of things but the house bill if I had to summarize it was it uh, is imploring wildlife and fisheries to be more open minded about other ways other effective ways to control hogs yes. And let me clarify something. I'm all for that. I want every hog to die. I would, in a perfect world, I would love to never again in my life or anybody else's life, when you hear coming at you down the trail, that you think it's an eight point or 12 point walking behind you and it's a piglet or it's an 180 pound boar. And then in addition to that, stop tearing up the roads, stop tearing up the woods, stop pushing deer out of areas, all of the the destruction that they do. So we're in support of eradicating hogs. Yes. Uh, And that's a very firm stance that that I have and Louisiana Bowhunter has. We want all hogs to die. The the problem with the bill is that it it implored wildlife and fisheries to increase opportunity for hunters 
to assist with the eradication of hogs. Correct. And very the, vague. The yes, very vague, and it can definitely be interpreted, uh, you know, a million different ways. And that that was where the the concern came. Yeah, it was a slippery slope. I'm all for this bill. I'm all for any measure to kill more hogs. I'm sorry. Actually, I'm not to kill more hogs. To kill all of the hogs. That's the line, folks. That is the literal line in the sand of something that I'll support outright and something that I'm going to be skeptical of until I see it happen. This could be 100% for that. But my point is that if it were the true end-all, be-all eradication of hogs, it would have said that explicitly. Don't you agree? Yes. And so this is some of the conversations that I've I've had with people and some of the, the things that I fear the direction that this is going to go is that people are going to want to hunt more on WMAs at night. People that hunt hogs with dogs have this belief that they retain, they possess the ability and power to kill all hogs. It's just wildlife and fisheries fault because they won't let them on the WMA. Yes. There's, and, and I've got to say it, it's delusion. Yes. It, it is absolute delusion because somebody told me one time, hunting with hog dogs is the most effective way to kill one hog. Have you ever heard that? Yes. Yeah. I have heard that. Killing multiple hogs is absolutely possible. I'm not saying that's not. But the reality is that killing an entire sounder in one clean swoop with hogs in one night or in multiple efforts is it's not implausible. It's impossible. Yes. So it, it's, it's way more effective with... I hate to use the word population control because, you know, they've just gotten to be such a problem that I don't even like thinking that we can control the population. But trying to trap the entire sounder is really what we need to strive to do. Because when you hunt with dogs or you still hunt and you, you run the chance of separating that sounder and that increases the, the chance that you're making the problem worse. Mm -hmm. Like they're actually... Uh, impacting more acres or that they're going to find different pigs to hook up with and, and reproduce. And, you know, the, the idea of, of going in and getting one pig and, and stretch and separating the sounder can actually make the problem worse mm-hmm. than it does better. So that's, you know, that's one concern with, mm-hmm. with the hog hunting is, is what's the most effective way to do this. And that, you know, brings us back to the science and the research and the peer reviewed articles that, you know, trying to, to get the whole group with these corral traps is really is really the way to go. Let's talk, we'll talk more about track trapping here in a moment because you have some programs in which you run where you actually hire local trappers and pay them per hog and and they they I don't know what your expectation of catch is or kill or whatever out of a sounder but the first fact about hogs is that they're an invasive species. I feel as if we have to say that. They're invasive and they're exotic. So they take over and they don't belong here. Yep. And so part of the reason why, not part of the reason, the reason why people are so uh, passionate about hog hunting is because, and I'll give it to you, it is fun. Sticking a pig with a knife after you chase it through the woods with a dog. It's like, like, that sounds like. It's like skydiving on the ground. That sounds like super adrenaline rush. I don't care if you're for hogs, against hogs, if you like killing them from a helicopter, if you like killing them with a knife, you cannot sit there and say hogs aren't bad. Right. Period. You, that is, and if you do, then you're just, you're just adamantly defying logic. The reality is, is that there, they can be a detriment to entire deer populations. And then, um, WMAs are taken over because there is a long period which they can't be hunted. And so 
in this bill that was um, that was released, uh, I want to say it was April, the end of April, I think. One of the methods of take that I am 100% for is being able to hunt with a caliber large enough to kill multiple hogs during any open season. For example, there's a May squirrel season. The largest round you can kill a squirrel with is a 22, whether it's a 22 Magnum or a 22 or a 17 HMR or, or, or what's, what's the smallest shot you can kill a squirrel with? Three shot? I think, yeah, it's three shot is legal because my, my friend Dennis Jenkins and, and his wife had the same question uh, earlier during bow season. A hog is going to laugh at three shot. Yes. You better really hit them good with a 22 in the right spot. And even if you do, you're definitely not going to hit more than one really well with a 22 and take out multiples in a, you could just say a non large game season. Pigs are tough. Um, and some of the research projects that we've done, uh, with the university of Georgia, you know, they won't wear a collar. We put pit tags in them and they rip them out. The moms rip them out of their babies. Like, like they're buried in the skin and they'll bite a chunk out of the wow. behind the ear and the neck or in the leg. Yeah. They'll just rip them out like savages. So what's, what's the percentage of hogs that have to be killed every year just to keep the number at level i think it's between 70 and 75 percent to keep a stable population because they they reproduce like crazy they uh can have two litters a year usually six in a litter Mm. uh i think gestation period is like 114 days so between three and a half and four months you know they're Mm -hmm. pregnant have a litter and then within a couple of weeks you know they can be pregnant again and have another litter and so they just, I mean, reproduce like exponentially. Yeah, like rabbits. And so to to keep the population stable, you have to clean, uh, kill. I think I think it's seventy five percent. So this is back to like w- w- the whole point of why I wanted to have this conversation is is effective measures of s- either sustaining our population now or making it smaller. Okay. Yes. And and so it's been proven scientifically. No matter what other way you like to shoot them, like I said, whether it's for a helicopter, with a dog, whether you teach your cats on leashes to chase hogs and kill them, the only way to kill multiple hogs at once is through trapping. Yes. And, that, and you told me that. Mm-hmm. And that isn't your opinion. Well, here's my concern with the bill and, and how it relates to hog eradication in Louisiana. Um, people want to be hunting them year round. That's obviously a concern to me because of brood rearing and fawn rearing. You know, I don't need all those extra boots in the woods in May, June, July, Mm -hmm. and August. I just don't. So year-round hunting, I just don't, I don't think that's an option. My second concern is these people that think that, you know, if you just let me out in the woods, I know I could take care of them. Are there enough of those people that are dedicated enough to go out there and do that all the time that are going to make an actual impact on the population. Mm -hmm. Like I know people are really going to be gung ho if they open it up, you know, maybe from September one until March one, you know, just go out and whack them. Mm -hmm. And I think the first year people are going to be nuts. They're going to be loving it out there doing it. And I think participation is going to slowly peter off. Well, you know, a perfect parallel to that type of um, that type of program is the the Nutria Tail program, the the Nutria um, Lottery or whatever it is. Oh gosh. Yeah. So I talked to her last month about mm-hmm. this because I just I, I I was looking for educating myself and making sure that that I was kind of confirming my stance. The Nutria program is not working anymore. Well, here's the concern with you know the state paying 
hog hunters for, for a lottery. Like lottery. Yeah, well, not a lottery, but like a reward system. Yes. Yeah. So, if they put a value on hogs, does that increase the desire to have pigs because yeah. now they're valuable and now people can uh, host hog hunts and outfitters can sell hog hunts because people can come kill them on their property and then they can take them to the state and get paid for them. So mm-hmm. essentially you get paid for a hog twice, yeah. like once for a hunter that wants to come kill them and then the state pays you as well. So I think there's a lot of, of caution with the reward system because if we put a value on these pigs, is that going to yeah, help get rid of them? Cause a whole nother problem. Yeah, and so yeah. Th- there's there's a little bit of concern on whether or not that's really going to be effective. Well, and then on top of that, um, you know, it's already it's already pretty well known that there are some people that will catch hogs, cut their testicles off, let them go, and so if people are doing that already, there's no reward system whatsoever right now. Okay. Yes. And it, and just so we're clear on this podcast, it is illegal in the state of Louisiana <laughs> to transport a live hog. Yeah. So don't do that. Don't do that. Um, but in addition to that, for fun's sake, let's say that the state wanted to introduce a, a lottery program. Or not a lot. I can't I gotta stop saying that word. A reward program, mm-hmm. payback on, on per animal, similar to the nutria program. The real problem is is that it would have to be a part of the pig that was uh that it couldn't live without. So something like the heart or an organ of some sort or the head or something like that. But the other problem is that you there is the chance, and they're not accusing anybody of anything, but there's always a chance that you could buy a pig heart from a butcher shop um, for $5, $10, and then if there was a $30 reward, that's not a bad investment. You just go buy 100 hearts and and sell them for thirty dollars a piece of the state, and say, yeah, I killed a hundred hogs, and you you made a nice chunk of change, right? And so um, that isn't necessarily effective either for that reason. But the uh, the other issue is that the the delusion I really do think it is a delusion that people believe that they can single handedly have a massive top level impact on hog population. And there's people look there's there's a guy. Um, I can't remember his name right now. I haven't met him. I follow him on, on Instagram. I, I know his handle is 225fishing, and he's pro staff for Bowie Outfitters. And I, I do not remember his name. This dude kills the absolute shit out of some hogs. I'm talking like he kills hogs the way you and I wake up and go to work in the morning. And even though he might be killing between 5 and 40 hogs a night, he's only one person. Or he's only one team, or him and some other people. Now, if everyone could hunt like him, then yeah, like maybe this would be open. But I don't think that everybody's on that that's level. That's not the majority. Right. That is... A, that is people s- are doing it recreationally. Yep. And so when I spoke with the woman, uh, I think she was in the New Iberia office about the Nutria Control Program. She said that the reason why it's petering out and not working anymore be, is because it costs so much money... In personal expenses, gas, time, effort, equipment to go out and kill Nutria that $5 a tail reward months later, sometimes weeks later at best, it isn't worth your time. It's an opportunity cost. And so just like you said earlier, while there 
Certainly, without a doubt. If Wildlife and Fisheries came out tonight and was like, hog hunting is legal year-round, every WMA, go for it, day, night, weather, sleet, snow, rain, nice, you sun it, whatever, go kill them all. Oh, my God. I mean, there there would not be a bullet left on the (laughs) shelf. Yep. But the reality is, is a couple months later. Participation would peter out. Normalize Mm -hmm. massively. Yes. And you you would still have some people that were still gung-ho about it. You know, but even then that isn't sustainable. When I say sustainable, I mean, this is, this might take years, years of consistent effort. Um, And I think that's, that's wildlife and fisheries biggest concern is that if they're going to make a decision and keep in mind that like trying to get laws changed with um, the commission and, you know, how the legal system, because it's not wildlife and fisheries making this decision. They're just a consulting entity. You know, it's essentially up to the commission to make these decisions. But trying to get these laws to pass, it's really hard sometimes. Mm -hmm. And they just want to make sure that they're making a sound decision, you know, like an effective change. Because why would you waste all that effort changing the law if it, you know, if it's not going to be the most effective way? Yeah. But um, I want to touch on something that you said about, you know, people being gung-ho. I just get nervous about all those boots in the woods and and the kind of impact that that's going to make to these animals that are not used to yeah. all of this traffic during these different times of year. And, you know, come like that buck in Tensaw, like he knew it was hunting season, time to get back to the closed area. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, I think, you know, animals pick up on, you know, the orange army. Activity, and I think if yeah. people just start flooding the woods like crazy. You know who, who well, knows it, it, what the, how that would disrupt the system. I, yeah, I don't want to say I don't, I don't want to say that it's it would be negative effect because you know I'm not trying to demonize people that like to recreation recreationally chase hogs or you know, shoot them with night vision or whatever whatever means you like to do it. That's an activity; it's legal. But the the thing that I needed to set straight is that it isn't nece- like it isn't possible for people, no matter how bad you want to kill all the hogs it isn't possible to through through very manual one by one methods that it the the number of hogs versus the t- enough time in the day is is a mismatch it isn't possible right um and so you know talk talk to us a little bit about maybe some hope that we can have about how could we how could we even if it's hypothetical get our hog problem under control so as i mentioned before those corral style traps where you trap the entire sounder Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of them have the satellite, you know, send a picture to your phone and then you could remotely trigger, uh, the trap to come down, mm-hmm. um, to trap all the pigs. Um, like the hog problem is, is an awful situation, but I, I think that we need to make sure that we continue to be strategic about the approach mm-hmm. to this and, and work together. Because if we just send a bunch of people out there and, and open the season, I, I just don't. I don't have a lot of faith that it's going to be the most effective way to get rid of them. Well, when you and I spoke about this a few weeks ago, um, the most important piece of uh, trapping hogs is that you catch all of them at once. Yes. And if you can't catch all of them, it needs to be like 95% plus. Okay. You can't have 25 hogs and catch 11. 
Mm-hmm. Um, now you just have a slightly smaller sounder running yes. around that that might just go join up with another one. Um, and and I'm I'm going to do a shameless plug here for um, for a guy out of Northeast Louisiana, a company called Hog Boss Gates. Um, he is the manufacturer of a, a digital remote gate system for hogs. It works in cor- uh, correlation with I believe you said it's any trail camera. It doesn't have to be a specific brand um, because it isn't triggered by the game camera. It's triggered by a passcode on your phone. So you monitor to monitor them independently. Right. Okay. Um, but uh, his name is, I believe it's Corey, K-O-R-Y, if I remember correctly. Um, and I, I think his last name starts with a G, but I can't remember his last name off the top of my head. But he even, he and I have spoken, and, you know, this goes in line just with the whole support Louisiana companies thing. Is you've, got, you've got companies that make hog trap gates out of, you know, Georgia, out of Texas. Um, well, now we've got one in Louisiana. And it's actually pretty affordable. So what he does is he sells, he's now got a full system where he can sell you the gates, uh, the, the, the mechanical gate, as well as the walls, if you wanted to call it that, um, the ring around it. Uh, but he can also only sell you the gate. And I think the, the gate's 1200 bucks. That's with the, that's with the mechanism and everything. And then you just throw your cell provide camera. Provide your own panels. Yeah. And, you yeah. provide your own cell camera and, and you could put this thing anywhere. And another thing that you told me, um, Betsy was that, uh, hogs become very aware of traps very quickly. And, yes. and that's one of them. That is the most important reason why you have to catch all of them at once because you don't want to educate half the herd. And then if they join up with another one, they're going to not let the whole herd go in at all. Mm-hmm. They'll just avoid it. So, um, uh, not, not, you know, saying it's possible to not have a hog that's never seen a trap before, but the reality is, is with a, a system like the hog boss gates and, uh, his trapping system, it's fairly mobile. You can set it up by your, you know, by yourself or with two people in just an hour or two. Um, and you can pick up and move that thing a couple of acres, a couple hundred acres away in an afternoon and set it up for different nights during the week, you know? Um, but that's, that's one thing that was important to me was he's a local Louisiana company. I wanted to make sure that we kind of got his name out there because I know he's got his products at Simmons sporting goods. He's working with some feed and farm, uh, farm supply shops around the state as well. But, um, anyway, you know, I think, I think we can kind of start to wrap it up. I think maybe we've, uh, pissed off enough people tonight <laughs> sorry guys <laughs> um but uh and like i said just to, just to end it again is you know i love to shoot a hog just as much as anybody else does i just want to i want to kill all of them because you know my number one concern um and i hope a lot of other people's as well is, is our deer population that's what we really care about that's what we really want to maintain and that's what we've put all of our time and money and days off and equipment and stands and sweat and blood into hunting and, you know, a hog can be some nice lanyap every once in a while, but the reality is, is that things would be a lot better if they weren't here, you know? So, um, hopefully we can move towards that direction one day. Is there anything else that you want to add before we go? No, I got nothing. You got nothing. You gave us a lot tonight and I appreciate you, you coming over and, and talking with us and, uh, uh y'all be good and, until next time. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Louisiana Bowhunter podcast. If you've got anybody you want to hear on the podcast, send us an email at info at louisianabowhunter.com or send us a PM on Facebook or Instagram, and we'll be sure to get back with you. We also want to say a big thank you to our two sponsors, Cousin Smokehouse and Steve German's Taxidermy Art. We appreciate everything you do for us, and we could not put this podcast on without you. Make sure that you're following Louisiana Bowhunter 
on Instagram, on Facebook, and also LouisianaBowHunter.com, where we make sure to update daily with new information, pictures, videos, and articles about deer hunting in the state. So we'll see you every Monday at 8 a.m. Until next week, thank you.